Founders, welcome back to the Zero to 5,000 podcast, where we obsess over the convergence of human potential and business results. Today, our hosts, Drew McClure and Jordan Mitchell, have another insightful conversation for you. So let's jump right in. Okay, founders, welcome back to the podcast. Today, I'm sitting down with Vincent Borze, the CEO and founder of Superbolt. With master's degrees from both Telcom Paris and Columbia University, Vincent founded Superbolt in 2016. Born from the need of having an agency partner that worked well with in-house marketers, Superbolt made it its mission to be the agency partner that they always wanted but couldn't find. Superbolt is a data-driven, digital natives that drive growth across your marketing funnel, build brand equity with your audience, and give you crucial insight into your business. They work with disrupting consumer brands in fashion, skincare, wellness, food and beverages, and more categories, and have offices in, in New York City, LA, and Paris. And here to share their journey that made it all happen is Vincent. So Vincent, thank you for being here, my friend. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So tell us in your own words, back in 2016, where'd this come from? How'd this thing get started? Yeah, absolutely. So at the time, I was um, CMO of a direct-to-consumer company in the food space. And um, I, I happened to have started at that company um, uh, because it was co-founded by people in grad school with me. And um, I joined the company in the early stage and basically it was still a moment where we're all figuring out what we're going to be doing, what we're going to be the responsibilities. And um, the co-founders sort of gave me the responsibility of, of figuring out growth. And at the time for direct-to-consumer companies, it really meant figuring out the new growth levers that were Facebook, Instagram advertising, Google advertising. And it happened that I had been studying um, here um, uh, operation research, which is a field that usually is applied to supply chain management and financial markets, but that basically looks at sets of data to optimize allocation of resources. And this could very well be used for basically paid digital advertising. So what I happened to have learned uh, for financial markets, for supply chain optimization, worked very well for um, specifically social media advertising. So I joined that company. We were spending $5,000 a month on Facebook ads at the time. And within eight months, we're spending half a million a month on Facebook ads. And we're growing very, very rapidly. We went, this was a subscription box company, we went from having 500 subscribers to 50,000 subscribers that were all paying $100 a month within the course of 12 months. Um, and so we had a huge growth. And, and then came the moment where we had a lot of growth. We were venture-backed and it made sense to like build a team in-house to work on these new growth levers. And at that time, um, basically the, the sort of, big insight we got was that to, to fully leverage the potential of these new growth levers, it was really important to have expertise in a team, not only in marketing and media buying, but we also had built in our team, we had two designers, a copywriter, a front-end developer, and a data scientist. And having this regroupment of expertise working closely together is really what enabled us to fully leverage the potential of these new growth levers. And the sort of key reasons behind this is that if you think about an add-on on Facebook or, or Instagram compared to a billboard you see on the side of a highway, 
Well, with, with an ad on Facebook or Instagram, there's two big differences. One, you can be very specific about who you're targeting. It's not going to be shown to everyone that's passing on the highway. It's going to be shown to people that correspond to very specific interest groups or demographics. And then the second piece is that you don't have to show the same creative to everyone. You can choose the creative you're showing to each of these sub-segments of your demographic. And so having the close collaboration between marketers, media buyers, creative team members really enabled us to like craft very sophisticated, specific creative strategies that would resonate with different audiences. The second piece why it was important to have all these expertise working together is if you think about the user experience of someone that's going on, on an e-commerce, you want to ensure you have consistency of the user experience all the way from the first ad they see on, on Instagram stories, let's say, all the way to checkout. You want their experience to be seamless, uh, consistent. And so the collaboration between your front-end designer, front-end developer, and the marketing team is very important. Mm. And the last piece of the puzzle is that through all of these um, uh, advertising platform on your website, you get access to a lot of data. Uh, but it becomes difficult to like parse through all this data to extract insights. You can get very easily data overload. And so the data scientist in that team helped us to parse through the data and really extract the signal from the noise that helped us to understand what really were the insights that would help us with the next iterations of the strategy. So long story short, we saw in that team we had built in-house the importance of having closely collaborating multi-expertise team members. And in parallel of being CMO at that company, in 2016, I started to be an advisor to earlier stage companies where it didn't make sense to hire a team of 10 people in-house. Hmm. And so at that time, I started to look at the agency landscape pretty naturally and looking at, okay, that seems to be like a, an obvious alternative. But what I found at the time were agencies that tended to be very focused on one area. Agencies that were really good at media buying or really good at design or really good at front-end development, but no agencies that have really regrouped all of these expertise and were offering sort of like teams for hire that would regroup these expertise with this, this holistic approach to gross marketing. And so when the company I was at was about to be sold towards uh, 2017, I went to see five people that were working with me uh, and all together we represented all of these core expertise. And that's when we started in, in 2017 with the goal of helping these, these new, exciting consumer brands uh, that were emerging with this direct-to-consumer trend and helping them to scale and, and reach their full potential by leveraging these, these new growth levers. And so that's when you decided to break off and start your own thing? That's when I, started, I went to see five people and we started to break off on our own. What were, what were the, uh, the early months like for you? The, the early months, um, so they were very much, so we, we, we reached a, a very good agreement with the company I was at when they were like looking for their exit where we would work part-time for six months and part-time we would focus on our agency. So I, I, I was very lucky to have uh, a really good, really good conversations with the co-founders of that company that gave us a bit the platform and the, 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 the space for us to start something. But it was very um, uh, chaotic, like every startup start, I guess. It was a lot of late nights where we would like, I would like provide beers and food for the rest of the people that were working to like 
give an excuse to like, you know, stay late and like work hard on our first clients, which we're not paying a lot of money because we're still trying to make a name for ourselves. Um, but we were lucky that um, we had at the time already built a bit of a network and a bit of a community in the direct to consumer space. So early on, even as we were sort of figuring out our exact product offering, our exact services, we had demand and we had some clients that were early stage and that were willing to, to take a bet on us and work with us while we were also like still very scrappy and figuring out how to do the best reporting possible, uh, which is important to clients, but they had a, a, a strong belief in our capacity to deliver growth to their business. So that was really helpful. And so early on, it was really about, we had demand. It was really about how do we structure the team? How do we structure the offering? Mm. Was, was that the biggest challenge in that first year? Yeah, I think the, the, in the first year for us, the, the challenge was how do we go from being one team that was sort of a spin-off from a company to becoming a company that can hire people, integrate people? Because the first six people we had worked together for like years. And so yeah. we already knew how to work with each other. We already had a vibe. We already had like easy collaboration, but all of a sudden you hire people in that group. And it was a lot about integrating them, making sure they, they, we, we were able to like also help them reach their potential and help them to grow in the company. Yeah. How do we do that? I know that, you know, one of the difficult things about adding people is it can change the culture or they can learn the culture, right? Like right. how did you all keep what you had and expand it into bringing new people on? I think at, I mean, at the beginning, we were, for context, we were working um, out of restaurants. So during the day, there was this thing called spacious. They would transform restaurants during the day into co-working spaces um, from nine to five. It was a great service. It was very affordable. Um, but you have a limited subset of people that want to do interviews at restaurants in the middle of the day. Yeah. Uh, so... You have in the beginning, I think, to, to find people that are excited about the scrappy nature of an early business, um, especially in our case, we didn't raise like massive venture capital. It was a self-funded business. And so um, we had to find people that were willing to take a bet and, and uh, willing to join a company in its early stage with very young people that had like big ambitions, but uh, it was very early. So I think the, 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 the culture of the company where we kept some core fundamentals, like always where we're looking and we always had three sort of keywords that we shared to people on their first day. Like this is a sort of vibe of the company. We still do that today uh, because we think it's helpful for people when they join the new team to know a little bit what's the vibe. So we always say like we're a team of like drivel, driven, sorry, humble and curious people. And we explain like why those values are important to us. Hmm. But then through time, I think in the beginning when we were very scrappy to now where we have like 10,000 square foot office in a financial district, it's like a different vibe, of course. Um, and, and I think we, we've, it's important to make the vibe evolve because to me, I think at a certain stage, you're trying to hire at scale. You're trying to like build programs, let's say, with we have like good collaboration with NYU in the city. And, and they sort of want to see infrastructure. So I think as you scale, the, the, the culture has to evolve, but I think you have some core fundamentals you're trying to keep. It's always a very difficult balance. The sure. happy hours don't look the same, 
uh, in the beginning, like, you know, they would go until midnight and everyone would be a bit hangover the next day. I think today, like, I wouldn't do that anymore. And there are more time where people are not invited to this part of the party anymore. But, um, you know, you got to make it evolve in a bit. Yeah. I mean, you, you articulated well what seems to be pretty common and common sense, like makes sense for the development of a company, which is it's very organic early on. It is very loose in its structure because it's just a few people and like structure, too much structure would slow it down, right? Yeah. But then it gets bigger and that lack of structure can actually create a problem. And so it needs to grow and evolve, but you want to hold on to certain elements, right? And so talk to me about that. That's that's a difficult transition. Like, yeah, we need to look different. It's It's a different company now, but we want some things to stay the same. Yeah, I think we, we, we try to um, cultivate a keep a, a very entrepreneurial spirit, a very a very uh, a place where you can have a lot of growth, but not as well at the beginning. That was sort of like something where everyone who was joining immediately was like involved in everything. So you had like early access. But how do you keep that uh, a, a promise that is exciting for people joining today? And for us, it looks more like today, like a sort of typical agency or consulting uh, um, framework, which is when you join, we have, you know, an associate program. So we hire people uh, from like I was mentioning NYU, but like many other universities. And, and we have a track from, you know, junior associate to associate all the way to associate partner that takes about like four or five years. And now we have like several examples of people that have started as junior associates that are not partners in the company. And it's a lot about how do we, but now that has created like a big framework where there is, you know, we have compensation grids and we have like mm. incentive systems and we have like P&Ls that people are in charge of. But I think we've tried to keep still this entrepreneurial nature. And, and then if we think about, we, we always try to have a very like collaborative, thoughtful um, work environment. And that's something we had uh, initially in the beginning by just being the one sort of doing the trainings and trying to be thoughtful in that way. And as we, and then it's how do you transform that as you scale? For us, it's been a lot about empowering manager, giving the tools for managers to continue to do that. And so, for example, it's been like building a lot of training material during the COVID moment where workload decreased all of a sudden. For us, we were like, okay, it's an incredible opportunity for us to like, it's the first time we have time in years. Um, to create like the best material for the people that are going to join once like growth is going to come back. And so actually during COVID, that's what we did for three months. It was like a huge focus on like building the infrastructure. So it was a funny yeah. moment of like a bit crisis, like for everyone, but at the same time, we're like, okay, what, what's the best use of our time? And it was, that was a big moment for us to like build that infrastructure to continue to like keep our values as we were going to scale. We were like pretty bullish on being still able to scale up to that. I, I really like that. I mean, COVID represented a a forced innovation moment for a lot of people, right? It, you either sat around just worrying and kind of, you know, fumbling with your fingers, or you said, what could this opportunity provide us, right? Like, what could, how could we use whatever the world is right now? How could we use it for a benefit? And for you, it sounded like you were able to focus internally for a minute, where typically you're exactly. on the client, external, external. And now you're saying, hey, let's let's clean, let's clean up the house, let's get some training in order. Is it kind of like that? That was exactly like that. I mean, there was a bit of panic. Like, I'm not of course, the, yeah. Like, the, the first week, but we tried to, um, you know, uh, um, have a long term view 
uh, we were able to put a plan in place that like saved almost everyone's jobs. So that was like a positive. Um, and, and within a month we were, uh, we got like help from the government. And so we're able to like, re like rehire everyone, like red furloughed, like I think four or five people wow. and by the end of the year, we had done pay cuts and by the end of the year, we're able to pay back all the pay cuts. So we gave like bonuses at the end, like that were like, just pay back. So that was, we had a good year, but I think what we did in the middle was, um, really helpful. Well, we did two things. One that was useless, one that was really helpful. The first thing is that historically we only had, um, we always had more demand than capacity. So we never had built like a prospecting funnel and like leads and we didn't know how to do that. And we're like, all of a sudden we lose 35% of our revenue more or less overnight in, in, uh, in the third week of March. And we're like, well, we need more clients, like, but we don't know how to do that. And so we try to scrabble like a, a prospecting strategy with some of the team that all of a sudden had time. We got one client in three months. So I don't know, maybe that was a success, <laughs> but that wasn't like great. But that was one part that we did. We didn't put on the side because demand came back. But the big thing that was immensely helpful was building this training infrastructure. Because for us, that remains like how we've grown so far is really by hiring like a very sort of agency consulting type, like hiring at Center University and training. Because yeah. also in our world, there isn't, it's still a new um, discipline, growth marketing. It's very new. So there isn't that many like graduate programs that teach that or general assembly. Yes, like there are a few places that teach that, I think interestingly, but it's still a lot of like training on the ground. And so for us, it was like, okay, if we want to like scale and maintain our quality of service for clients at scale, we need to have really amazing programs. So that's been our big, big focus during that time. You mentioned a few things there that I think are really interesting. So one, I've talked about this before on the podcast, but this actual podcast came from the same time period that you and your team were going through. So I run, uh, I co-founded a coaching company that we work with the leadership development and people development, basically the people side of fast growing companies. And it's almost identical. We lost about 38% of our revenue overnight, you know? Right. And which makes sense in the, you know, yeah. in the consultancy model, like companies were going to say, we got to freeze our budgets. We don't know what's happening, uh, that type of thing. And so we also had to go for the first time and think about driving demand to us, you know, and we're like, what do we do? How, like <laughs> no one's doing anything. And so what we decided was we're going to create this podcast and just see if we can meet potential customers through the audience, through the interviews, that kind of thing. Um, but it was a great exercise for us. Like it forced us to think, hey, we've never had to think about this before. What would we, what would we do if we needed clients on demand uh, or we needed a pipeline, right? Right. Um, what I'm curious about for you is when you started investing in that training, what did you find to be the most critical things that your team or your managers uh, benefited from that they needed training in? I think for us, the, the first part was, uh, so there was technical training, which was like, how do we make our technical training, um, as helpful yet as standardized, we wanted consistency of the work we would produce for clients, which is always hard to maintain at scale, because all of a sudden you're going to have sort of 10 managers that are training, uh, other people, let's say. Uh, versus one manager or two. So you have like consistency across the board. Um, so that was the, the big one. The second one, which we first 
uh, omitted and, and realized how important it was, was management training. Because we're hiring, again, a, a lot of team members in their first, second, or third job. Um, and 90% of people that become managers in our team have not had managerial experiences before. And we realized that many people were facing difficulties about how to manage difficult situation. What, what do you do if someone is uh, um, not doing their tasks sometimes? And what, how do you manage, you know, the difficult but sort of classic uh, uh, challenges of, of management, people growing at different paces? How do you manage that in your team when two team members have started the same day? Like all of these questions, people were craving uh, frameworks uh, to think through them. Uh, and so that's been the second part that we really built was first was technical training and the second part really management training and frameworks to deal with managerial responsibilities. And actually this year, we've set up a lot of uh, frameworks for uh, people in, in Google director position, partner position on how to run a PNL, like also how to think through uh, client management, like uh, how to think about when and what type of clients they should onboard given where their team is at, um, when they're involved in prospecting conversations, what are the, uh, and we have the choice between two or three clients, how to decide which client is likely to be the best for them and for their teams. Like, how do we provide frameworks for people? Because in the beginning, it was really about like how to use Facebook ads. That was like the training, right? And, and little by little, it becomes like, okay, how to manage team members, how to do like monthly and quarterly touch bases. Like, how do you make sure they're about the growth of the person, not about your client roster? Uh, and then it becomes about how to manage a PNL, how to think about profitability about a PNL, but balancing like profitability, the, the success and the growth of your team and the quality of the service for the client. Like how do you balance these, these different elements where there is natural tensions between them? And so providing those frameworks, not only at the beginning, sort of when they join with technical aspect, and then with managerial aspect, and then with more generic business aspect, has become more and more important because now we're 85 people or so, we're, we're hoping to be like 150 in the next two years. And so it's really about helping people to continue to grow and become leaders, become PNL owners, become basically what we call partners um, in the company and do that successfully. While, as we talked at the beginning, keeping the same values, like keeping the same core values in their teams. And that's, I think, the, the biggest challenge we have today, but also like a really, really fascinating one. I love that. What are a few of the, maybe of your favorite frameworks that you find to be really helpful in some of those things? Yeah, I think we have um, a sort of core fundamental framework that helps us to like make a, a lot of decisions specifically on client and in team when we think about the growth onboarding of clients. And it's um, uh, balancing the three stakeholders that we have at Superbolt, which are our clients. What do our clients care about? They care about the performance of the campaigns we run with them, the insights that they're getting from us, like what are we telling them about their customer, their product, uh, their potential for growth, and generally the quality of service, the quality of creative, quality of delivery. Then we have our uh, uh, team. What does our team care about? They care about um, their growth potential, their growth path, they care about the work-life balance. Uh, we want to make sure they are like 930 to 630, 80% of the time. Uh, and they care about compensation growth, fulfillment at work. 
And then we have Superbolt, because that's the third stakeholder who cares about reputation as an employer and as an agency and about revenue growth and profitability. And it's like, every time we have a decision, this is the people and the like, what they care about for the stakeholders and what they care about. And so when we think about, let's say uh, we have a client that's like very difficult with us right now. We've all had that, right? A really difficult client. And we're thinking like, okay, short term, we want to make sure we deliver to the client, but let's put some midterm exit like uh, routes because for the team, it's not sustainable. We know that if we keep a client that's really a pain in the ass um, for uh, our team, that increases the risk uh, that they're going to leave Super Bowl. And so we're like, okay, we're going to talk to the team and tell the team we have a plan that within like three months, if that doesn't improve, we'll have dropped the client. And so we start putting with the client, hey, the first conversation, which is a light, hey, we think we need to, you know, review the partnership. It's difficult on our end for as an XYZ. And then we have a second one, which is a bit more official if the situation doesn't improve, which is like, if in 30 days it doesn't improve, we'll give our notice. And then we actually give our notice if it doesn't improve. But that gives a pass to the team to make sure that, hey, we're, we've heard you. We won't let the situation go into uh, um, to a point where it's like really making you question your employment. And and for Superbolt, like if we think about the Superbolt cares about revenue growth and profitability, but we care about that in the long term. So even if in the short term that means drop in revenue, it's much more damaging for us to lose a team member, like a senior team member, than to lose a client even if they're paying quite a bit. Because like we're we're really focused on like long term growth as an agency. So Balancing, having these three stakeholders and thinking client first, team, and then last sort of Super Bowl profitability uh, helps us to like think through questions like this. Like we have a difficult client, what do we do? And a team member, like his partner is like, I don't know what to do. The team hate, like hates them. Like they're really difficult, but they're giving us a lot of money. Like what do we do, right? And so like help having those frameworks helps us to, to think through those models. So what I love about that is that is a great decision-making framework is what it sounds like. That how do we decide if this is a good fit for us? How do we decide if this is someone we want to continue with? And you're running it through those three filters, right? And that's immensely helpful. Exactly. The, goal, the, the hope with that is that we're, we're, we're doing two things. One is empowering leaders in the company, like helping them to be comfortable and have somewhere to look at when having to make difficult decisions. And also on the other end, we're, we're ensuring that we keep a sort of consistency of value through time, even when like, let's say, I don't wanna make any decision. That's what I keep telling to, to everyone in the company is like, I don't wanna be the decision maker on, on anything, but I wanna provide you frameworks to make decisions so that even in the way we're gonna deal with the client or with the team, even if we think this is not a good long-term fit with the client, we always want to make sure we're super thoughtful and that even if an offboarding is what makes the most sense and if we want to recommend them to hire a team in-house, for example, because we think it's what's best suited for them, we're going to do our best to do that and like, let's say, build like a hiring framework for them before we uh, transition. Like we're going to try to always be like super thoughtful because we're, I mean, as you are, we're in a relationship business and we want to make sure like, people have like a great memory of the, the work we've done with them, even in cases where what makes the most sense is parting ways. What I love about that too, though, is you are empowering people to be able to make decisions because if they understand the underlying framework for why decisions would be made, well, then they don't have to check with you or 
the leadership every time a decision needs to be made because they understand the principle in which it would make you say yes or no or hey let's make sure we do it this way before we leave right exactly and and um it's not like this book principles by Dalio. it's like it talks well about this i think and and i think that's that's a book that i thought was like really interesting and inspiring and some parts i, I may not agree with but like i think the concept of like uh creating principles to help people being empowered so a, a big step we've done this year to transfer sort of power from the founding team to like the layer of like what we call directors and partners was to uh, uh, relied on three things. One was um, transparency, visibility. So we created dashboards where everyone could see like the revenue from all of the clients they work on, the salaries of each of the team members that they work with. And then we gave them empowerment on decision-making. So we said like, now you're going to be the one making the decisions about when we take on a new client, if we need to discuss like terms with an existing client, when we hire a team member, when we promote team members, when we give raises to team members. We said like, now this is your decision and here is the information. Here are some frameworks that go with it. And we'll always be around to like sort of help think through them, uh, especially in the first uh, few ones. And then here are incentives. Basically, how do we align your incentives with the long-term incentives of the company so that also you're, you're like incentivized to make the decisions that are right for like the long-term view of where the company wants to go. Talk to me. I'm so fascinated by this. Talk to me around the decision to make the salaries of the other team members visible. What's the thinking behind that and how has that gone? So we have, we, we're just short of, so we've always thought about the salary grid um, as if it becomes public one day because someone like shares the link of like all the salaries, everyone's like, eh, that makes sense. Um, I, w I had an experience where I was revealed a salary once of someone that was in my team that was paid 50% more than me. I was like, what the hell, right? And I was like, that's like, I don't want this to happen. I don't want, and, uh, and, and so we, we always said it that way, uh, with that framework in mind, which was like, if it becomes public. And so all of the salaries are on a grid. So everyone more or less at the same salary at the same, uh, titles. And if we make an exception and exceptions are like very small percentages, we document it. We explain the why. So then again, if it becomes public, we have the why of each of the differences and they're all explained like in a very like specific way because they had to take exceptional responsibilities for that role, for example, and like we detail it, the exact responsibilities. Um, and then we wanted that every manager, like everyone who's like a director or a partner is the one making the, those decisions. Because if they think that an exception that's gonna happen like 10, 20% of the time is warranted, uh, we want them to be making the decision. Like, let's say we have a team member that's about to leave, right? Take, get an offer from like a brand and they're like, hey, here is my comp there. Can you guys, or like, what's my path to matching there uh, in the long term? Or what should I look like? We want the partner to be the one equipped with, you know, those tools uh, to, to answer that question. We don't want to be the decision maker for their team. Like, they're the one in charge of the PL. They should be empowered to make those decisions. So that was the thinking. It's like, we had some cases in the past where someone would come and ask for like a growth pass, but he was like the N plus three having to make the decision who has no visibility on, is that person actually over delivering? Is that person like, shouldn't that person be promoted on a faster track because they are like trying to push more. And we had this problem a couple of times and we we're like, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, and we had a lot of frustration from those people that felt like they were asking to their N plus three who like didn't really know, like, and, and then plus three was not well equipped 
to make that decision either. Was also frustrated about like, why that person coming to me? Like, I don't know. And so we're a bit stuck. And so really the, the answer was like, okay, let's equip people that are the best position to make the decisions um, to, to actually make them. But that meant changing, like creating like a big, like reporting infrastructure and a lot of frameworks. But we spent a year doing this. Like we, we grew a lot for the last, like 2020, 2021. Like 2021, we grew 75% year over year. But this year we'll grow about like 10% or something. Like very slow for, compared to like historical for us. Because we spent the entire year like restructuring the company to like empower new leaders to take more responsibilities because that's what we thought was a necessary step in order yeah. to grow another two times uh, the size of the team. Yeah, it's the slow down to speed up type thing. It's the hardest exactly. thing for us to do. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's it, the yeah. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just saying, it's just emotionally hard, even though you intellectually get it. You're like, I need to slow down to speed up, but I don't like the feeling of slowing down, right? I know, especially when you, one thing that's been interesting is like for, for two years, so uh, on a monthly basis, we, we show like the, to, to everyone in the team, uh, the some key performance indicators of the business. So we show the, the revenues we collect in fees and we show the growth of the team. Uh, and, and for the last two years, because we were in growth mode, like we had like a good organizational design that worked for scale. And so every month basically was like record months. Like, and so we were like used to that pace of like every month, here's where we are. And it's like, we grew by X percent. And all of a sudden for an entire year, you're like flat. And so you have to change your framework and because you look like you're not winning anymore. Like you look like, okay, what, what's going on? Like it's been two years we're growing. That was just status quo. Yeah. And so it's been really interesting to have to like, Okay, no, let's reframe and like we to we did a lot of work in explaining what we were doing and why we were changing everything and and why we're going on another cycle of growth and and um, we we gave equity to all the like senior people in the company basically explaining like hey we're going for another cycle of growth before likely going to an equity event in like three years or so and and here is everything we need to do to do that so like we're not going to grow this year it's going to be a little complicated we're going to need to reorganize a bunch of teams. It's going to be like a little painful and we're not going to grow. And we explained this to everyone in the company more broadly, but it was a really interesting exercise. Of like, it's easy to say like things are great. We're breaking records every month. Right, like that's right. Right. But explaining the moments where you stop growing and you're actually asking everyone to do like really sometimes painful stuff of like, hey, all the clients you have, well, 50% of them, they should move to that team actually, because they're like, we're trying to realign this thing for the long term of like, which team works with who. Um, and, and that's hard to like digest. And so we had to do like a big, I think, effort in, in, in explaining why we were doing all of the changes we were doing and like painting the like three year picture, um, so that we get buy-in because otherwise I think you don't get buy-in and people are just like, why are we making those decisions? It don't seem to make sense when you look at the KPIs you've been showing us for two years, for two years we're growing, we're not growing anymore. It doesn't seem yeah. very sad to me. So you gotta like really spend time explaining the why and, and like convincing people that what you're doing is sound. Yeah. You know, it reminds me of the parenting challenge I find myself in often, which is, you know, the kids asking why all the time I've got three kids and, you know, I grew up in a generation where the answer was because I said so, and I've tried that and it's not as effective as I'd like it to be. You might get compliance, right? Like you, you can, you can force compliance. But you yeah. don't you don't get growth. You don't get them understanding yeah. truly why we're doing what we're doing. And so, you know, if they're three, I can't explain everything. But like my seven year old and my nine year old, I can have a conversation and say, Hey, here's why we're going to bed right now. 
here's why we got to brush our teeth right now. Like it's more than just, I told you to, it's these things, you know, can fall out or can, you know, create a lot of pain and things like that. And so, um, I find the same thing in business. Like we want to just say, cause I told, cause I, cause I said so, like, just trust yeah. me, this is, this is good, yeah. but you don't get growth. You don't get people buying in that way. Right. Exactly. And you, and it's hard for a, a, a team manager to motivate their team when they don't know why the decisions are happening. So if they are very clear on why we're making the decision, they can also explain it to their team and get the buy-in of their teams. But again, in this, it goes back to me for, to the empowering of, of where we go partners or directors, um, for them to be, uh, you know, successful and be able to motivate the teams, they need to have a clear and crisp story of like where the company is going. Um, if they don't know, it's very hard for them to explain why we're like taking on this additional client or why, when we're hiring at that time or at that time, uh, they need to know, and they need to be the one like having a very clear story. And so that's why we want them to be making those decisions based on the broader vision of the company. Um, so then they're very clear when they're explaining it to their team and they can bring their team along and have their team being motivated. So, uh, and the, yeah, the kids, uh, uh, metaphor is funny. I'm, I'm, I was pregnant with uh, our first kid. So I guess I'm, I'll, I'll get to know these lessons soon. You will, you will. And again, you'll see these just interesting parallels between, because right. adults, man, like think about it, like adults are still just kids in big people bodies. Like it's, we don't change that much. We have the same desire to know why we're doing this. We want to know, you know, the thought behind it, but also, and this is what I'm curious if you've experienced. There, I always think about like the two extremes or like two gutters, almost like in bowling, right? You can make an error on this side, you can make an error on this side. And so the error we're talking about is the like, just do it. Like, don't right. ask questions, just do it. But the other side is you can almost become too much of a democracy. And I, I don't mean yeah. too much political terms, but like where we can't move forward unless everyone agrees or, yeah. you know, like how do we navigate that? And um, I, I think there was an interesting, so in, in principles of right now, he, he has an interesting framework for this, which is a sort of like weighted decision-making framework of depending on the topic, one person is going to have more weight. And there are some decisions where, even though I don't want to take a lot of decisions, some decisions I'm still the one to make. Uh, there are a few ones where I'm still the one. And there are some other ones where it's the managing partner who's the one like in charge of all the, the partners uh, that's going to make, she's going to make. Uh, so there are some key decisions where you also need to be the one who's like listening and then saying like, here's the decision, here's why. And please, please trust me on this. Like, so you, you still have to use a bit of that, right? Right. Um, I, I think it's, as in many things, I think it's in the balance and in identifying what decisions are best taken by one person or by, because they're the only one with all the information. Um, yeah. And, and some decisions are better taken by, uh, you know, on the, like choosing a client, I'm not the one who's going to work with the client in the end. So I want to give a recommendation and my, what I've have seen, I want to share my experience. We were talking from we had a prospecting call with a company in the, uh, in the pet space yesterday. And I was sharing some experiences I've had, like working with other companies in that space with a partner that never worked with companies in that space. I think that's very helpful information for them to make the decision, but I'm not going to be the one saying like, that's a great industry. I think this client has a ton of potential to scale. We should work with them. Like, mm. like so I, I think 
for me, but on the like, do we return back to an office or not? I'm the one who's going to make the decision. Like on, because I think that's like office culture. And I think I'm the only one who has all the information about the like sort of financial implication. Having an office is very expensive, New York City. Um, but I think it can have like a big output. And like, it, this is a type of decision where like I'm still going to be the one to, yeah. to make the decision. So I, I think it's about understanding the, 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 perimeter of decision-making of each person and for each decision, who's the best position and, and what is the, the group, like, as we said, uh, uh, what is the, the voting participants, um, mm. and, and to make sure that people are on board, uh, and don't think you're in a dictatorship where there is one person that takes all the decision, but you don't get stuck in like constant debates. And, uh, uh you want to, for example, on the office decision, I talked to a few of the leaders and, and, we also have an office in Paris, different cultures. So trying to understand a little bit yeah. everyone's position. But at the end of the day, I was a decision maker and I said, this is the policy and this is where we're going and this is why. Um, but it's it's a fascinating topic. It is. It is. And it's an evolving topic. You know, yeah. like you said, where principles are still true, but how they express themselves might change depending on the culture or on the moment. Yeah. But I like what you're saying about the different weighted, like seeing it as a weighted thing and that depending on what we're talking about, there's going to be someone who's better positioned based on the information they're able to gather to make a final call. You know, the way I think about it is like, I fly a lot. I'm sure you do as well. Imagine if we had to get, you know, gr the group okay before we took off. You'd sit there forever because so-and-so is still not there. They're running late. We need to wait for them. You know, it's like, you do everything you can to get everybody on board and everybody comfortable. But at the same time, at some point, the door is going to shut and we got to go, you know? And so I think about that sometimes where it's like the way a, a framework we've used is always seek alignment first. Like right. our first goal is we like alignment. We'd like you to understand, yeah. offer you the chance to, to collaborate on this and like, let's find alignment. But if we can't, at some point, we've got to make a decision and then offer yeah. you the choice to join us, Right. Exactly. I, I, I completely um, uh, agree with that. And, and I think it's about collecting information, making sure everyone feels heard. I think it's very important. Everyone should feel heard. Um, but at the same time, you, you, you have to make a decision at some point. And I think it's, it's very important to say to people, like, hey, this is our, our vision. This is what we're doing. But we also understand if that doesn't work with you. Like, if that doesn't correspond to, like, your values or there is something... I've had quite a few conversations about this around, again, the, the work from home policy, right? Uh, we, our policy is like, you have to come one day per week in the office uh, for, and you have a, a three months full remote. So it's a very flexible policy, but we still had some people that wanted to work fully remote. And I understand that. Um, yeah. I very much understand that. But what we're saying is because for us, collaboration, especially between marketing team member, design team member, copywriting team member, that's the whole beginning of our company was like close collaboration between multi-expertise teams. And in order to foster that, we've seen that being in the same office environment, uh, both for the water cooler conversations, the actual meeting in person, the happy hours, the, all of this enables better collaboration. And I think more enjoyment in the day-to-day -day work and better deliveries for the clients. So those deliver better stuff for a stakeholder, which is why Superbolt is taking the cost and like that reduces our like profitability by a lot, right? It's like, yeah. but we think it's like in so long-term bet and it's going to be better for the team, better for the client and better for Superbolt in the very long term. 
uh, if we have an office where people can meet, interact. And, and so we explain all of that. And, and some people were, but we were like, but we understand that for some people, the ability to work remote is very important for personal reasons. Yeah. Uh, and it's just that given what our business is, given that some teams really need to work together, and we have also the component of training, onboarding people that are just outside of university, then I'm of the belief that they need like the more framework you can provide for the first work experiences, the better their work experiences will be and the faster they can grow in their careers. So for all of these reasons, we're like, we're going to be a company which is going to have a, a, a component in person. And, and, and this is a strong belief for us. Uh, but there are a lot of agencies that are full remote and I understand why some agencies are full remote and I respect that. But for us, it's a strong belief. And so in that case, we were like, this is our belief. This is the terms we have. And we had a couple of people that were, that I moved during the pandemic because we were fully remote during the pandemic. And I were like, I want to come back to New York. And we're like, all good. Let's figure out a plan over like, you know, two, three, four months. Let's transition. But long term, that doesn't work for us. Yeah. And I think that's really huge because we can unknowingly fall into the, the belief that we have to create something that works for everyone all the time. And although the heart is good because we like our people or we want everyone to be happy, it's just not realistic because you can't create a place that's great for everyone all the time. And it's actually what makes a free market economy beautiful is that you could find somewhere else that like might be a better fit for you in this season of life and what you've got going on at home and needs or whatever that we're, we would bless that. Like if this doesn't work for you, does that make sense? Absolutely. Uh, no, no, I, I completely, that completely resonates with me. And, and I think that's really what we're trying to get to. Um, in, in, in the sense that we, with that statement, we're saying like we, we respect your, your position about working, wanting to work from home, but this is, a, this is and I think the, the important thing is being able to justify it, being right. able to explain it, not because uh, I've decided off it, like people don't work from home. No, this is not what I'm saying. Yeah. What, I'm, what I'm saying is that it's not like I don't trust people not working from home. Actually, our productivity like, was amazing when we were fully remote. But long-term, we're starting to see like, people being not as happy and like people being a bit confused about their own during their onboarding and like people growing just slower in yeah. the company because they were like training fully remote is hard. So yeah. hard. Um, and so we're like, okay, it's going to be better for team, better for the client. We're able to justify it to think in a way, which is like, and again, it's like better for like our two key stakeholders, the team and the client. So I think we had a clear justifications to your, to our point earlier, it can't be, a, I've just decided. I just woke right. up this morning and decided that people should be in the office, otherwise they don't work. No, that that's poorly taken. And I think you read some of that sometimes in the news and it's like, no, no, you need to be able to justify it with like a, a thoughtful, uh, uh, detailed like uh, explanation. Yeah, like you said, the lack of, sometimes it communicates, oh, we don't trust you. And so we need to be able to look over your shoulder or I'm here, so you should be here. When we get out of that and just say, hey, especially in a creative industry, collaboration is critical and one of the uh, one of the things i've seen in creative industry is like trust and even almost like learning to finish each other's sentences is harder it's not impossible it's just harder and slower when i've never met you when we haven't had informal time together that wasn't just the meeting but we were walking out of the meeting and talking about things like i've just noticed drama like quote unquote drama it increases the more that distance increases between you and other people. Does that make sense? Absolutely. We, we saw that. So we were fully in office for two and a half years, then fully remote for a year and a half. Towards the end of that year and a half, 
there was tension. Yes. There was tension that was built because between teams, people didn't have, it's sort of like, you know, you're always going to be a little irritated by someone in the other team, but then you're going to have a beer with them. So the yeah. irritation is going to go back to zero. Uh, and you're going to be friendly, but then you're going to work. You're going to be a little irritated. You're going to meet to the water cooler. It's going to go back to zero. But all of a sudden, it was just building and there was no reset point because you mm. don't have the like, you know, it's just nice people. We just misunderstood each other on that Slack exchange, like all good. Yeah. And I think that has immense value. And I think if you're in a very collaborative industry uh, with a lot of like daily interactions and you're very interdependent, it's very important to have that uh one-on-one sort of like in real life interactions. But actually one thing that we've made evolve in our policy is for some parts of our team that work on longer term projects. Uh, so for us, it's our web team and where um, it's become very hard to find talent in big cities because during the pandemic, there was a lot of people that moved to everywhere in the country and a lot of companies went full remote in that industry. We actually moved our web team fully remote. Because mm. it was too hard to find talent uh, in those big cities. Yeah. Um, and for those type of jobs, there was less collaboration with other team. And it's more like asynchronous collaboration. It's more like documented online versus like quick calls. And so that actually worked. So again, and, and we were like, we made, we started to make an exception. We we're like, okay, actually for that team. And we explained it to everyone in the team. We we're like, for that team, we actually reflected. And, and we think that it's better for the company if they're full remote. Um, and so I think you also need to be able to like, even if we did this amendment, I think it could have very quickly led to like, well, that person's full remote. Why can't I be full remote? Like, <laughs> right, right. And so it was about like putting the, like, you know, the, the framework being like, it depends on which team. And it's not like we arbitrarily chose the team. It's linked to the amount of collaboration and the amount of incremental value that the company get, the team get, and the client get from having that team in person. And I think... We like drew a little chart where like marketing team is the highest, creative teams are like the second, very close. Data team, it's like in between and the web team was the lowest one. And we're like, yeah, for the lowest one, we think it makes more sense for them and for the company and for the client that they're remote. Um, but again, that's really cool. Gotta explain it. That's really cool. I mean, that's next. Again, if you hadn't had the time this year or hadn't made the decision this year to allow yourself to slow down so you could think about these, you wouldn't have the time to even think through the situation to the degree that you all have thought through it. Exactly. And I think that puts us in an interesting place for next year where, where we really feel we have like good foundations, sort of solid uh, frameworks for people to be uh, 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 leveraging when having to make decisions um, and, and onboarding their team for, for a growth phase of growth. Phase of growth. Um, and and uh, yeah, the the... We're actually, so I was mentioning my wife's pregnant. My wife is managing partner in the company. So in Q1, we're both going to have to take a step back as well. And we're hoping that our, um, all the principles, all of the things we've put in place, all of the leadership, like that's going to be an interesting, like real life test where we're going to have to take a bit of a step back. Yeah. Uh, but we've, we've spent a year empowering and, and trying to give frameworks and give like information uh, to, to leaders to like take more ownership. Of course, I don't think we're going to be like fully off, but. <laughs> no, I love it. I, I think of I think of pregnancy as one of those things that is a great forced stress test where yeah. if you think about like anytime you step away, like I was doing a training for a company the other day and one of the leaders had to go away for something. I don't know what it was. And I was asking, hey, how's everybody doing? And give me some celebrations. And one person was like, I'm celebrating that my leader went away. And he was in the room. And I was like, oh, why? 
And I thought we were about to step into some drama. And he's like, oh, my leader's fantastic. But him being away allowed or forced me to figure things out myself. And I grew a lot because I couldn't lean on him as much as I was used to. And I had to go just figure it out. Right. Right. And you see that a lot when you are forced to step away. It's like, hey, people step up. People learn. Other people don't step up. And that's interesting. And you're like, oh, okay, interesting. I wonder why you didn't step up. Um, But the last thing I want to say on that, and then I'm going to, we're going to wrap up here. But uh, on that remote, the reason why I'm even excited for our audience to listen to this is it's a challenge we're all thinking through is conspiracy theories. This is the way I put it. Conspiracy theories about other humans grow in that environment of separation. And what I mean is like you have this innate or this subtle, she would do that or he would do that. You start forming these, they meant they, that was actually a backhanded compliment. Like you start creating these little conspiracy theories that evaporate nine times out of 10 when you're like, no, I know that person that they didn't mean, they didn't mean that. Does that make sense? Absolutely. It's like. As soon as you meet people in, in real life, when you when you only interact with someone through Slack, you think they're the worst person in the world. <laughs> right. And right. you meet the person, you're like, oh, actually, they're really nice. Like, yes. they're great. When you have a, like a coffee with them and you learn about their life, and immediately you connect on a like human level, which changes from the like pure professional level, where sometimes people in professional environments have like very short sentences. It doesn't mean that they're short and they're like not nice people. Yeah. Uh, they're just trying to be efficient. Um, yeah. And, and once you know that, okay, that Slack doesn't mean that they're upset or that they don't value my time. That's short Slack just means that they're pretty busy. Also because at home they have like two kids or something. And uh, like all of a sudden it changes your perspective completely. And so meeting in real life, even for full remote environments, I think meeting in real life, like, you know, aggregating everyone in the same city for like a week once in a while is is really, really important. That's amazing. Yeah, I read somewhere that we naturally as humans read a text or read anything that's just through like, you know, word written word as like a tone or two, uh, below what it actually was. Yeah. Yeah. That our filter is like, actually we just naturally read it a tone or two (laughs) below what it was intended. And that's just interesting to know. Right. Uh, So, Hey, what what I want to do is I've got a lot of business owners that listen to this podcast and you are obviously uh, have an amazing uh, growth marketing service for for businesses. Who's who are the kind of clients that you really like to work with, and where should I send them if they're listening? Yeah, no, thanks for asking. We work with with companies at at three stages. Uh, about ten percent of our clients, we help them around go to market, so putting in place the foundations of their growth strategies, understanding where product market fit is. Seventy percent of our clients, they're um, typically, if they're on venture tractor between Series A and Series C, so it's all about accelerating their growth. They're looking for uh, building their growth engine. So we're going to help them with strategy, execution, reporting, analytics. Last group of clients is our most CPG brands. Um, historically, have relied on retail and wholesale as distribution channel. We help them build their D2C channel and understand how it plays in a in an omni-channel strategy. Um, and we're about fifty percent of our clients are e-commerce companies, so. A lot of beauty, personal care, skincare, uh, fashion, jewelry, home goods. Then we have 30% in healthcare, a lot of new clinics, uh, telehealth, really, really interesting space, and 20% in like fintech and tech. Um, and if they want to hear about us, they can email me at vincent at superbowl.agency, uh, or they can go on our website and there's a little form at the bottom. Awesome. Awesome. Vincent, this has been fantastic. I'm honored to talk with you. It is clear that Uh, you are building something special there and are a very thoughtful leader. So I appreciate your time today. 
I appreciate you having me, Drew. Thank you awesome. so much. Founders, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and hop into our monthly founder email so we can ensure you stay on the edge of peak performance and massive business results.